0: Good morning, and uh, welcome to Delve. Who are joining us? I think up in the uh, upstairs in the blue room. So hi, guys, and I hope you this will get a debate going upstairs. And uh, if you're catching up on YouTube, Merry Christmas. So, um, <laughs> so, so who were the Magi? Uh, on the face of it, an academic question. So, what we need this morning is a professional academic. Uh, however, the budget didn't extend to this, so uh, what we have instead is a keen amateur. An amateur, who, uh, however, who is not without credentials. In 2010, this church staged my third Christmas musical, Starwise, the Magi story reimagined in a science fiction universe. And I can assure you some extensive research went into the show. So you'll forgive me if I shamelessly reference my own work from time to time. So, um, so a good Baptist preacher will always have three points, of course. Uh, so That's why I've got four. Um, <laughs> we'll start with a look at some of the traditions that have grown up around the Magi. Then we can move on to a more historical basis uh, for understanding them. Part three will present a strong case for a connection with Old Testament prophecy, and we'll finish with some closing thoughts. Now, to be honest, the question, who were the Magi, is not one I don't think I can answer definitively. We'll be dealing with likelihoods, probabilities at best. The subject of the Magi traditions, I think, could be a lecture on its own, but the title I have given this morning is... uh, who were the Magi, not who they were not. So uh, let's deal with this fairly quickly. I think most of us are familiar with the uh, famous carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Well, the only bit of that title that is accurate is the word Orient, a word meaning the countries of East Asia, not a football team in East London. (laughs) So Let's start with the word three. Matthew simply uses the plural word, Magi and never specifies three. I mean, there may well have been three, but all we can say for certain is there are at least two. In Starwise, I suggested four, not to claim that uh, was historic, so much as to be just a little provocative and suggest there might not have been three, if you're with me. So, uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition has 12 Magi linked to the 12 days of Christmas. Festival begins on 25th December and carries on until uh, 6th January and Epiphany, the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. I do think it likely that there were more. Uh, When the Magi visit Herod, we are told that he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Do we seriously think the whole population was disturbed by three guys on three camels? I think it likely the Magi had a substantial entourage. They are high ranking dignitaries on a mission in enemy held Roman territory. It's probable they had armed escort, livestock handlers, caterers, valets, servants. I think this painting is a, a worthy attempt to be more historical and probably a lot nearer the truth. So, the idea of three Magi is thought to have derived from the gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. If, as an artist, you want to depict the three gifts being presented, it's quite logical to have three characters doing it. The idea that the Magi were kings emerged in the 3rd century century AD. The concept probably develops because of two prophetic psalms which (laughs) describe... Foreign kings presenting gifts to the Messiah. However, Bible scholars are pretty well agreed that these prophecies refer to the end times, not the incarnation of Christ, the first coming. Having said that, there was one notable, notable exception when a Magus may well have become a Persian king, as we shall see later. That's your teaser. Again. Now, obviously, the Magi had names, but Matthew neglects to tell us them. Perhaps Luke would have included a bit more detail. In Western tradition, we know them, of course, as Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. These names apparently derive originally from a Greek manuscript composed in Alexandria around 500 AD. Other traditions have a whole range of suggestions and variations, but let's be aware that none of these names are mentioned in Scripture. Now another little legend we need to deal with is this one. Uh, Many of us will have, have one of these in our home over Christmas, but the idea that the shepherds and wise men turned up on the same holy night simply is not biblical. In Matthew's account, we're told firstly that Herod determined from the Magi what time the star had appeared, Later he orders the dreadful massacre of the innocents, sadly putting to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So, if like our famous Herod in Starwise, the king rounded up just to make sure, we're looking for the Magi visit to occur probably one or two years after the birth. So with the myths myths sort of debunked, let's move on to the historical Magi. Let's begin with the name. Magi is a Latin version of the Greek Magi and that's what you'd find in the original New Testament manuscripts. Uh, That in turn is a transliteration of an original Persian word meaning Powerful. Now, here's a little game we did with the Tuesday Club kids. I'm hoping Mike might help me here. What letter in the English alphabet can we add to the end of the word magi to create a well-known English word? And the answer is, of course, C for magic, from which we also get these words. Now, it's important to understand that sometimes a proper noun can enter the common language. Uh, I think a good example would be, you know, when you vacuum your lounge, you might be using a Dyson or a Henry, but you still hoover it. Don't you? The, the word becomes generic. And the same happened with the word magi. Their religious practices and use of astrology caused the term magic to be applied to the occult in general. Now... It may surprise you, but there is a substantial amount of ancient documentary evidence for the Magi. Here's a list of writers who mentioned them outside of the Bible up to 100 AD. It's a pretty impressive collection featuring big hitters such as Aristotle, Plato and Plutarch. By far and away, the most important of uh, the historians for our purposes was Herodotus, here's an original photograph of him, (laughs) he he is an important source because of the time he lived, 5th century BC, and the fact that his birth city in present-day Turkey was then part of the Medo-Persian Empire. Herodotus refers to the Magi in no less than 20 chapters of his work, The Histories, and don't panic, we're not exploring all of them but I do want you to get an idea of how much material we can draw on. First thing to note is that Magi is one of six tribes and they are specifically Median, not Persian. But where is Media? A check of the map and a super quick history lesson I think would help give us a a bit of context. So um, this is the Babylonian Empire of the 6th century BC and you can see Media to the northeast of Babylon, beyond the uh, Tigris River there. Another important date is this one, 550 BC, when the Medes and the Persians are united under Cyrus the Great. Eleven years later, the unified Medo Persian Empire conquers Babylon. It's enormous, isn't it? It's, it's a huge empire. Fast forward to 330 BC and Alexander the Great finally conquers Persia, enter the Greeks. Just seven years later, Alexander dies, 323, and his empire is split between four generals. The Seleucids now assume power in Mesopotamia and uh, the, uh, the Orient, I guess we would call it. Now, the Parthian Empire is essentially a re of the Persians, and in fact is called the Second Persian Empire by some historians. It becomes the dominant eastern power at the time of Jesus' birth, with Roman power in the West, of course. So, who were the Magi? Let's go for it. Dream interpretation, properly called aniromancy, was actually the principal role of the Magi. We see several important instances cropping up in the histories. Uh, I'm just going to pick one example here. King Xerxes sees an unusual phenomenon, possibly an eclipse. And Herodotus tells us, when Xerxes saw and took note of that, he was concerned and asked the Magi what the vision might signify. Based on their interpretation, King Xerxes makes a strategic military decision. We can clearly see the Magi operating at the highest level of government. The Magi, though not kings, were very much king makers. A significant significant text from the historian Strabo in describing Parthian culture notes that the council of the Parthians is composed of two classes, one of relatives of the royal family and another of wise men and magi, by both of which kings are chosen. Magi uh, were not beyond making a bid for them, uh, power for themselves. I promised you that teaser, didn't I? So, The magi organised Persian society after the fall of Babylon. However, their power was, was actually curtailed by Cyrus the Great and his successor, Gambises II. In 522 BC, the Magi revolted against Cambyses and set up a rival claimant to the throne, one of their own, a Median magist named Galmata, who took the name of King Smerdis. Now, he reigned for seven months before the revolt was put down by Darius I. Well, at least that was longer than Liz Truss managed. So. <laughs> The full story is uh, very colourful and historians debate how legendary some of the details are, but it is accepted that the coup happened and we can certainly know what happened afterwards. The Magi were very nearly wiped out. The Persians, they thought of as their allies, ran through the streets, decapitating every Magus they could find and they didn't stop there. For years to follow, they made the slaughter of the Magi, an annual holiday. No wonder Herodotus reports, while the festival lasts, no Magus may go outdoors, but during this day, the Magi remain in their houses. Well, you would, wouldn't you? (laughs) This event is recorded on an important piece of architecture in modern-day Iran, the Behistun inscription. It's a 15-metre-wide rock relief authored by King Darius. Now, if you look at um, this close-up, you can see Darius holding a bow as a sign of his kingship with his uh, left foot on a figure believed to be the Magus Garmata. It reminded me of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's the imagery of the times. But I trust you're getting a sense of the political clout of the Magi. They have enough influence to put an imposter on the throne. No wonder even Plato, in his no lesser tone than the Republic, refers to them as these dread Magi and kingmakers. Of course, the Magi were also known as famous astrologers. And it's critical to understand that in these times the disciplines of astronomy and astrology were combined. After the Enlightenment, science and philosophy very much parted company, whereas ancient wisdom attempted to fuse the two together. Wise men of the biblical period were interested in both how the cosmos worked and what it meant. Now, the tradition of astronomy in the region was already well established. The uh, Venus tablet of Amesadouka, which uh, can be seen in the British Museum, could actually be as old as 900 BC and it tracks the movements of the planet Venus with impressive accuracy. But what of the uh, Magi? Another Greek historian, Appian, is discussing students of sciences from various countries. And he notes that, as to those of India, Alexander interrogated the Brahmins, who seemed to be astronomers and learned men of that country, like the Magi among the Persians. So it's significant, I think. When Appian is looking for a comparison, he goes straight to the Magi. Okay, another key role for the Magi was the priesthood. It's fascinating to read that King Cyrus, quoted by Xenophon, says, set apart for the gods whatever the magi direct as they interpret the will of the gods. The histories relate that the magi sought omens by sacrificing white horses, made offerings and cast spells upon the wind. And this is a good one. Noted, no sacrifice can be offered without a magus. In a society where state and religion are most definitely not separate, we can get an idea of the power and the influence of the Magi. Uh, We also need to understand that the Magi priesthood was an hereditary position. As the Jewish priests had to be from the tribe of Levi, so Persian priests had to be from the sacred caste of the Magi. But which religion did the Magi follow? Plato refers to the Magian law of Zoroaster. And interestingly, there is a high degree of synergy between Zoroastrianism and Judaism. Zoroastrians are monotheistic. They have one God, Ahura Mazda. They believe in a transcendent God, not part of nature. Like the Jewish God, the I Am, who exists outside of space and time, They refer to the uncreated creator, which I love. And uh, throughout Starwise, this is how our Magi refer to their God. They have a doctrine of good and evil, a high moral code, and they even have a messianic figure, the Soshant, who will bring about a final restoration of the world in which the dead will be revived. What they don't have is a suffering servant a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Returning briefly to that uh, Beastun relief, we notice that the primary symbol of Zoroastrianism, the Thadavahar or guardian spirit, floats above the scene giving blessing to the king. Under Darius' rule, Zoroastrianism became the state religion. Perhaps less well-known is the fact that the Magi also practised medicine of sorts. Uh, the famous Roman author Pliny the Elder records in detail all sorts of weird herbal remedies and potions that you're very unlikely to find in your local pharmacy. These were often accompanied by incantations and spells that wouldn't have been out of place in a Harry Potter movie. So... Um, Put all this together and you can see that the Magi had multiple important functions. Herodotus talked about those of the Magi who interpreted dreams, which infers that there were those of the Magi who didn't interpret dreams. I think it is not unreasonable to postulate that the Magi specialised in different disciplines, an idea that found its way into Starwise. Now, various versions of the Bible translate magi as wise men, astrologers, sorcerers, all of which are correct to a point, but limited. I believe the only use of the Persian proper noun magi, together with an understanding of what that name means, gives us the complete picture. Let's move on to part three. Allow me to introduce you to Dr. Hormuz Shariat. He is an Iranian Christian with a ministry to preach the gospel to his own nation. He is convinced of the Persian heritage of Matthew's Magi and states three compelling reasons. Firstly, the word Magi, as we have seen, is a Persian word. Secondly, the earliest representations in art depict the Magi In Persian costume. This wall painting in the catacombs of Rome dates from around 250 AD and is the earliest known representation of Matthew's Magi. The dress is Persian and uh, you can actually see the cuffs pulled in tightly at the wrists and ankles. That's to keep out the sands so this is practical desert wear. Note that there are three Magi represented. Although experts believe this is more indication of how early the idea of three wise men had become a tradition. Now thirdly, Dr. Sharet believes that the Magi knew to a certain extent the Jewish scriptures, particularly the book of Daniel. On his website he claims, Daniel was and is even now respected in Persia as a prophet from God. His book, written in modern-day Iran, was available and revered by Persians. If he is correct, it is entirely plausible that Matthew's Magi were familiar with the book of Daniel. However, we actually need to start in the book of Jeremiah, the earliest ancient text to mention Magi. Now, recording the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Jeremiah mentions a number of invading Babylonian dignitaries, one of whom is this gentleman, Nergal Shariza, labelled chief of the mages. Now, I'm using a literal version of the Bible here because if you're trying to follow this in your NIV, uh, hard luck, it does a bit of a cop-out and translates it as a rather vague high official. Now, the good old King James Version does better using this... Weird abbreviation, Rab Maj, a transliteration from the Persian. So on the face of it, Median Magi seem to be serving in the Babylonian court, but the idea does seem a bit stretched. The problem is, Jeremiah does seem to suggest it. Okay, let's go back to Daniel. I think most of us know the story. Meanwhile, Daniel, taken as a captive by Nebuchadnezzar, makes uh, what I could call a dream start, boom, boom, and uh, with a super impressive interpretation and is fast-tracked to a position of considerable considerable power. Daniel 2.48 tells us the king promoted Daniel and made him chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel 2.2 tells us the king's advisors included astrologers, sorcerers, Chaldeans and magicians, a word derived from the Persian word magi. Are these medium, median magi? If they were, Daniel became their CEO with a bit of dramatic license. I do make that suggestion in Starwise with the song Message in Your Sleep, available on YouTube. <laughs> please, please visit. Okay. Let's fast forward 50 years and uh, this is 539 BC and to a very well-known Old Testament story, Belshazzar's Feast, depicted here by Rembrandt's famous painting. During a royal banquet, a divine hand appears and for King Belshazzar, the writing is literally on the wall. Well, that's exactly where the phrase originated, of course. Babylonian wise men failed to deliver an interpretation and Daniel is summoned. He tells Belshazzar that his kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes, remember the Magi, a Median, and Persians. Not only does Belshazzar's reign end, but the Neo-Babylonian Empire ends with it. The Magi, as we have seen, are Medes and it is at this point of history that they become priests and royal advisors in the largest empire the world had known to that date. Daniel's earlier equally precise vision of a two-horned ram was interpreted, we are told, by the angel Gabriel, uh, Gabriel himself as representing the Medes and the Persians. Median Magi, who surely knew of Daniel as chief of Babylon's wise men, have seen his prophecies signalling the rise of the empire that puts them into power. They have every reason to be pro-Daniel. So let's look at a key Daniel prophecy in chapter 9, which for me is one of the most astonishing passages in the Bible. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Daniel tells us three important facts there will be a Messiah. The Messiah will be cut off, i.e. killed or murdered, and he tells us precisely when it will happen. So what are these weeks that Daniel refers to? A week in this prophetic context is actually a block of seven years, hugely important in Jewish law and culture. The Amplified Bible calls them weeks of years. Now, I've got to be entirely honest here and admit there are four interpretations of this prophecy. Uh, I think being from a Pentecostal background, I tend to go with the one called the dispensational premillennial view for you theologians out there. Don't get hung up on that. But I just do want you to be aware that Christian theologians are not unanimously agreed on this. But let's go for it. Let's go for the maths. So, seven weeks of years times seven is 49. Seven times 62 is 434. And the grand total comes to 483. We now need to know when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given. Well, we know that Artaxerxes ascended to the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire in July 465 BC. Now the book of Nehemiah is precise telling us that all this came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. So this gives us a year for the decree of 445 BC. So all we have to do now is add 483 years but this is not as straightforward as it seems. The Babylonians and Jews used a 360-day year. So using this prophetic calendar, the number of days gives us a date in April 32 AD, which is very much in the target area for the death of Jesus. If the Magi were familiar with Daniel's prophecy, then firstly, they knew there would be a Messiah, the Anointed One, perhaps identifying them with their own Zoroastrian saviour figure, Saushant. Secondly, they knew the Jewish Messiah would suffer and be cut off. In Starwise, I suggest that their gift of myrrh, an embalming fragrance, was a conscious choice honouring this. Now, we've got to be careful not to overstate the case here. The Magi's opening question to King Herod, of course, is where is he? born king of the Jews. Well, if they'd known their Jewish prophecy back to front, they wouldn't have needed to ask. Thirdly, these Magi would also have known with a great degree of precision when the Jewish Messiah would be killed, around 32. What they didn't know was when he would be born. I think we really have to ask why a group of Zoroastrian Parthian priests are searching for a particular Jewish king at this particular point in history. Dr. Shariat suggests, and I think it is entirely plausible, that during the last quarter of the first century, there was a generation of pro-Jewish Parthian Magi that knew and preserved Daniel's prophecy and were looking for a sign. And his theory would also explain Why the Magi Odyssey is so much more than a diplomatic mission acknowledging a foreign monarch. They have seen his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Not just acknowledge, they are worshipping, as Katie pointed out so well earlier. Okay, who's thinking it? (laughs) Right. There's one aspect of the Magi we have only touched on thus far, And that is the fact they employed a whole range of occult practices. Jewish law makes it quite clear that such practices are an abomination and indeed punishable by death. Deuteronomy says, Let no one be found among you who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium, or spiritist, or who consults the dead. What Gary might like to call the dark side. (laughs) And in case you think it is only Judaism that found the Magi repugnant, the oldest surviving Greek reference to them is from Heraclitus in the 6th century BC, who curses the Magi for their impious rites and rituals. For our old Roman friend friend Pliny, their magic was a monstrous craft. Even pagan polytheistic cultures find magi practices detestable. And yet it seems we find these characters drawn inexorably to worship at the feet of Jesus. The Bible could even suggest that God spoke to them through astrological revelation. I believe the inclusion of the Magi in Matthew's account is telling us that the gift of Emmanuel, God with us, is not only fully inclusive of the Gentiles, but that it is also an act of divine grace. It tells us that whatever darkness we may be in or experiencing, there is nothing that is outside the scope of the grace of God. As the Apostle Paul tells us, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I think God might be responding to the authenticity of the Magi. Consider this. These powerful men whose interpretations had influenced the decisions of kings arrive in a small Judean sheep farming community in the home of a common building contractor and his teenage wife, and worship at the feet of a young child with no earthly nobility. That shows extraordinary humility. Perhaps they knew the Jewish proverb, surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Katie and the band would like to get themselves ready. Thanks, guys. Towards the end of Star Our heroes, the Magi, have finally found the infant Messiah and are discussing the event with the captain of their starship. Sagan observes, For years I have been searching for the truth. Today I discovered that the truth has been searching for me. Kaspar continues, We were drawn here, Captain, as surely as if your ship were held in a powerful tractor beam. There may be people here this morning or watching online who find themselves asking honest questions as we head towards Advent. Is the Christmas babe everything the Bible claims he is? Is Jesus Christ the way, the truth and the life? If you find yourself searching for the truth, just pause to consider this. Maybe the truth is searching for you. I'd like to finish with a prayer which is actually two verses from a traditional Christmas carol. You may like to follow on screen, just listen or maybe even close your eyes. Whatever you're comfortable with, let us pray. As with gladness men of old did the guiding star behold. As with joy they hailed its light, leaning onward, beaming bright. So, most gracious Lord, may we evermore be led by thee. As with joyful steps they sped, Saviour, to thy lowly bed, there to bend the knee before thee, whom heaven and earth adore. So may we, with willing feet, ever seek thy mercy seat. Amen. Amen.